Grace family, it is a delight to be back. Thank you for allowing me the privilege to come. Um, grateful for the interaction over some meals, uh, uh, dinner, for the hospitality. It is always a blessing to be here, to be here personally, to share with you. I uh, want to say to those who may be joining us online or watching through the net, we're glad that you have tuned in with us here. I do know that, uh, that my son and daughter in Virginia are watching, so if you don't mind, let me say hey to, to Ben and Allie, and then I have some dear... Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, and then I have some very dear friends. Um, we met at the church in Northern Virginia when I was pastor there. Uh, they were uh, in the military at that time and uh, since retired. Uh, they live in Mentone, Alabama, uh, uh, Mr. and Miss Pete and Rachel Stearns, and they run a bed and breakfast. And sometimes when you have guests in-house, you can't get out to the church that they're members of. And so that was the case. And so they were planning if everyone was, uh, if it worked out to be joining as well. So I'm grateful for them tuning in uh, too. So uh, glad to be here. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bible to Mark's Gospel, Chapter 9. And as you're turning there, I just wanted to say, you know, this is my third time being here, twice now chance and the privilege to preach and share from God's Word. Another time, my daughter Allie and I, uh, when we were supporting a, a youth camp down uh, in, at Laguna Beach, we didn't have Sunday morning responsibilities, so we drove up and we worshipped with you. All three times that I've been here, in the announcements, there's, there's been a common theme, and that is there's something that Grace Church of Bonifay is doing in the community to go outside the walls and get the gospel out. And uh, I can't remember what it was at the beginning of the summer, but here with the radio and just trying to, to be gospel light in the midst of darkness, getting outside the walls. And I commend that because all three times in the announcements, you guys have been talking about how do we go outside the walls to take Christ and make him known. And so I'm grateful for a church that is wanting to make him known and to get outside to bring light in the midst of darkness. The second thing that I want to say, I just as we were reading that passage from Exodus this morning, you know, it's a powerful thing that Moses says to God because God is saying, my promise is to lead you into this land to finally deliver my people from bondage into the land of promise. And actually, you don't ever become a nation until you possess land. So they had been a nation in waiting for 400 plus years. Well, for longer than that, 400 years of bondage. But even all the way back to the promise to Abram, right? Even before God changed his name to Abraham, it, it, was, it was a promise in waiting. And so you know, that's a big deal to actually possess and to now claim that. So that promise was something Moses looked forward to. And Moses basically says to God, if your presence does not go with us, then don't, don't let me leave. In other words, I would rather have your presence, Lord, than even your promises. And that's a powerful statement, especially from what Cliff was teaching this morning, where he was at starting that journey to get see where he was at toward the end of it, is that, God, I, I need you even more than I need your promises. And uh, so thinking that kind of maybe as a way by way of introduce, introduction to this, um, this, this passage, uh, when, when Dr. Allen has asked me to come, there's no doubt normally I'm taking messages, because I'll bounce off, Do you, are you going through, would you like me to carry on with where you're going, what would you, and he says, just put, you know, what's on your heart. 
And uh, the first message I preached was a message that God put on my heart many years ago from Revelation, and I was so thrilled to share it because if I ever just get one opportunity, unless the Lord tells me otherwise, I know that's the one I'd like to share. This is very recent. Um, in our um, organization, we are, we are connected to an organization called the Scott Dawson Evangelistic Association. Scott's a very, very dear friend of mine. And, uh, and so even though Strength to Stand Counseling is its own separate entity, um, I, I, when I go downstairs to eat lunch, I do so in their break room because our office doesn't have that. And so we're in the same building. We're just on the second floor. They're on the first floor. So on Mondays, I do staff meeting with, with their team. And uh, we're going through the Gospel of Mark in staff meeting. And, uh, you know, it was just assigned to me to, to do chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel. Now, of the Gospels, uh, I think we all probably have our favorites, and uh, for me, it's always been Mark. Uh, Mark's Gospel, written by John Mark, who is the guy that we know that went with Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey, and in the midst of it, he, he left and went back home. Uh, it separated Paul and Barnabas, unfortunately, but it did multiply the effort um, but uh, it did separate. It caused some, some division, contention, and they separated over John Mark because he wanted to go back on the second, and Paul said no. He, he kind of bailed on us the first time, and I don't want that to be problematic. Um, clearly, there was reconciliation of the relationship because when Paul writes his final letter that's actually at least canonized for us in his second Timothy, he will ask that John Mark come to him. And so there's definitely a restored relationship that had taken place. Um, we know that that's the John Mark who, who pins this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we know his primary information came from the Apostle Peter. So Peter is like kind of the inside source to many of what stories are unpacked by Mark. Uh, Mark's Gospel is the first of the three synoptics. So Matthew and Luke will actually use Mark as sort of the guide in, in creating their Gospels, each with their own approach. But Mark, like right, like right out of the gate in chapter 1, verse 1, says Jesus is the Messiah. The other Gospels wait some time in doing that. And right out of the gate, he also basically says the religious leaders who should have crowned the coming Messiah, the coming Deliverer, will actually seek to put him to death and get him put to death. So it's, it's right out of the gate. Mark is known as the gospel of action, and, uh, and so it presses forward. Um, it's also the gospel. Of course, it was the first it was written, but it uses the phrases a lot throughout um, the statement, which was Jesus' self-designated title, Son of Man. So quite often, that is the way Mark, when Jesus describes, it's just it's repetitive, Son of Man. And also, he unpacks the idea, when you read his gospel holistically, if you just sit down and read it, take an hour to read the whole thing through from, from chapter 1, verse 1 till the end, you see the kingdom of God is the way that he unpacks what we as kingdom people, Christ followers, are. Now, I know kingdom of God is something that since the Crusades back in the 1400s, 1500s, we don't often talk about. As a matter of fact, even like the Billy Graham Association stopped calling their events Crusades because there was this sort of, this sort of idea that that might mean hostile takeover. And so now it's called festivals. Most of the modern-day evangelists that still holds big events no longer call them Crusades. And so there's that term by way of 
of, of kingdom that sometimes we kind of shy away from because it, it, again, based upon the, the Crusades uh, and, and which kingdom was kind of what that looked like. And so there's some issues that have, that have gone on for us not to embrace that. But in Scripture, that is the best description of who we are as kingdom citizens. Um, Chuck Colson wrote a wonderful book back in the 80s called Kingdoms and Conflicts that dealt with the idea of the fact that we are citizens in this country and we should be good citizens of the country that we are a part of. And when I lived in overseas in Iceland, we were, we were um, immigrants who were welcomed in, but we followed the rules. We wanted to be good uh, not citizens, because we weren't classified as citizens, but we wanted to be good people, blessings, immigrants within their culture. And so as citizens, we need to recognize, yes, we do have a country that we should be good citizens, but we serve or are a part of a kingdom that is and is to come that has a much higher declaration in our life and a greater authority within our life. And so sometimes because of the fact that we haven't grown up in a monarch system, it's kind of hard for us to understand the thought of a kingdom or a king. And yet that's how Mark laid the gospel out. So it's, it's filled with that imagery. Now, before we walk through, and it's going to be a very high overview of, of chapter 9, and, and because I believe context is so key, in fact, if I say king, not that it trumps scripture, but understanding scripture in context is the key to unpacking truth in it. It's why it's, I love the fact you just go verse by verse, book through book. It just unpacks things. So kind of me jumping in, I need to give some background to it. But I want to do sort of a high overview of chapter 9, hopefully encourage, but then I want to come back to a single portion and sort of wrap it up with that particular portion. But the only way to fully understand, especially this kind of, really this, this shift, because chapter 9 starts with the transfiguration. That is the point from which, after chapter 8, the declaration, when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And by the way, Matthew's gospel is, who does people say that I, the son of man, am? They say, some say you're this, this, or this. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, son of the living God. Jesus' response, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, only my Father in heaven. And on that, I will build my kingdom. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, right? That, that declaration of truth, what he understood. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been looking for. You're the deliverer. That's what that means, okay? And so then he takes them to the Mount of Transfigure, to, the, to this mountain where he takes Peter, James, and John up for transfiguration. And from there... When he comes down, he will start the journey to Jerusalem to die. So this is sort of an apex point where sort of the pinnacle of the ministry where we start moving then to the crucifixion, all right? So I think it's important to sort of key in that. But to understand that by way of kingdom, it's good to note two passages from the book of Daniel. So if you're taking notes, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 are important for this reason. Daniel chapter 2, there's a prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar has when, when, Daniel, when they're under Babylonian rule. Now, again, think about for the nation of Israel. Have come out from those who are in Sunday school. Come out 
of Exodus from bondage in Egypt. Established new nation. They now possess the land. And they grow. And under David's rule, the kingdom expands. Under Solomon's rule, the greatest peace of their acquisition. Then the kingdom divides after Solomon's death. Northern kingdom, ten tribes. Southern kingdom, two tribes. Northern kingdom takes on Israel as a name. Southern kingdom takes on Judah as its name. They will war amongst one another. They will get into all kinds of times where there will be disobedience and disheartening. They'll have some good kings in the southern kingdom, many bad kings. Really no good king in the northern kingdom, just everyone leading toward idolatry. God will then say, I'm going to discipline my people. And I'm going to use the Assyrians. This is who Jonah went to preach to. I'm going to use the Assyrians as my instrument to discipline my people. And so first the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. The Assyrians come down to attack the southern kingdom. You remember Hezekiah prays and asks God to relent. God relents his mercy. Remember the death angel goes out, slaughters the armies of the Assyrians. They go back. But they have taken captive and basically laid waste to the northern kingdom. Then God says, because even though I used you as my instrument of judgment, you did that out of the wickedness of your own heart. So I'm judging you for treating my people that way. So he sends the Babylonians in to conquer the Assyrians. And they're going to take some of those people who were captive from the northern tribe, they're going to take them back into Babylon. Then eventually they're going to come in and they're going to lay siege to Jerusalem, to the, to the southern kingdom. They will take its captives. That's where you have Daniel and his friends that go in. <clears throat> there will be multiple sieges from Babylon who will take the people in. Right? And the nation is laid to waste. Now they're in Babylon. And in Babylon, under Nebuchadnezzar, he has a dream. It's this, it's this image, a statue. And so Daniel interprets it. And he says, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom, of the kingdom of Babylon, is this gold. It's the start. Following your kingdom. In other words, your kingdom is going to come to an end. And when it does, the next one comes. That will be the Medo-Persian Empire. That was Daniel's toward the end of his life. That Medo-Persians will conquer the Babylonians. After the Medo-Persian Empire, there will be another empire. And he lays that out within the statue. That will be the, the empire of the Greeks. So then you have the Grecian Empire. After that, another kingdom. That's the, the, the legs. And then you have the toes that are, that are made of the bronze and the clay. And there's ten toes, right? We know the Roman kingdom would eventually break into ten sub-kingdoms, sub right? So he's clearly he's talking about the northern kingdom. We know that for this specific reason, too. In that prophecy, a rock comes down out of heaven. That rock lands in the feet. It hits into the feet. And this rock grows. Have you ever seen a rock that grows? No, you don't garden for rocks, right? It, it just, they don't grow unless it's the kingdom of God. Remember for Peter, everything was centered on, his name was changed to Petros, little rock. Christ is the chief cornerstone. His incarnation, Jesus taking on human flesh, started in the Roman kingdom. Pentecost came at in the Roman kingdom. That's the beginning of this new kingdom. This new kingdom is going to grow. It is going to expand. So what does that look like 2,000 plus years later? Every continent has been impacted and influenced. For 2,000 years this kingdom has been growing. And then it's gotten to all kinds of tribes. Not every 
dialect of people, but it has made its way around the world. There are millions upon millions upon millions who have trusted Christ over the last 2,000 years all around the world through different languages. There is no kingdom that has ever come close to that. If America in all of its might had wanted to expand its territories, it could have outdone a Caesar and it still would have paled into the kingdom of God. Because that is massive. It's had no end and it will not have an end. So that's that's the chapter 2 prophecy. Well, the chapter 7 prophecy, so, so the kingdom is very important, this rock that came down out of heaven. Chapter 7, and begin, it depends what end time view you take, but all of us would agree at some point the recognition is the one who sits upon the throne with flowing white hair, who uh, 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 is ablaze with glory, is the Father. We understand that from Revelation, uh, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, who sits upon the throne. So we know that. But we know that the one who comes to the Father, who the Father gives him the nations, is, it says, the Son of Man. So when Jesus took on the title of Son of Man, he is referring back to the Daniel 7 prophecy. He is literally saying, the Father has granted in this kingdom that I am establishing, I am the Son of Man. So from the get-go, Jesus never hesitated to make known that he was the Messiah, that he was the Deliverer, that he was the one who was to rescue them. So that was the reason he took on Son of Man as his title, was to declare, my kingdom has come, and I am the king of my kingdom. So when you get to chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 5, he says, this is what my kingdom looks like. It looks like a, a, a light. And what do you do with the light? You put it on a hill to shine it. You don't cover it up. What do we do as kingdom people, as, as representing his kingdom? We're light in the midst of darkness. That's why we get outside the walls. Why? Because even in the darkest of dark, a little bit of light shines brightly and people can see it. And then he says, what, how else shall I describe the kingdom of heaven? It's like a seed that goes into the ground. And there it goes. It goes in. And when you least expect it, boom, it pops up. Now, I get that. I like to garden. I didn't when I was a kid, but I enjoy it now. And here's the thing. Jesus understood about germination. He talked about a grain of seed goes into the ground and dies. But although we understand and know that seed goes in, think about it. When you plant your green beans, when you plant your okra, you put it in the ground, right? You, you break the ground up, you put it in, you pat it down, you tend to it, you, you, you water it, you might even sing over it. You're looking, expecting, anticipating for it to come up. But what happens? One day you walk out and boom, it shot up. It never happens while you're watching it. In other words, there's a mystery behind the kingdom. Our job is to so faithfully... God's work is to bring about. And it is mysterious how he does it. Conversations that we have from 20 years ago that God might radically all of a sudden bring someone 20 years later. Do not think of anything by which you endure, go through, or share that God may not use it for his glory somewhere down the road to expand his kingdom. It's a mystery. It's just he does what he does through the faithfulness of his people. And then he says, how else would I describe the kingdom? It's like a mustard seed. That's a very small seed. It was the smallest known to them at that time. But when it grows, so I've been over, and I have seen the mustard trees. 
They are massive. How does something so small become something so big? Well, that's the kingdom. It's, look, when that group started in Jerusalem, that was a small little group. But its impact last 2,000 years. It's massive. So he talks about the kingdom that way. He then describes what the king is like. He's, so the king, Jesus, is in a boat. It's going across the lake. And the waves are stirred because a storm blows up. And Jesus is sleeping. And they wake him and they say, don't you care that we're dying? And he gets up and he rebukes the waves. He calms the storm. Our king, for which we are a part of his kingdom, is Lord over nature. He controls the heavens. The sun shines at his will. The rains fall at his beckoning. He can hold the sun in place. In other words, nature bends to him. Gravity and time are under his control. He gets to the other side where he encounters a man filled with demons. He casts them out. They go to the pigs. What do we learn? The king of the kingdom for which I'm a part of is lord over the demonic. And we do. We are in a battle with that which is unseen. Our enemy is not lost man. It is a vicious, wicked set of demons that are fallen... These angels that have fallen that are demons who would love nothing more than to steal, kill, and destroy lives. And it is a spiritual battle. And our king, for the kingdom we're a part he is lord over them. He is master of them. Then Jesus gets back in the boat, goes to the other side, where he's met by a man named Jairus. Jairus has a 12-year-old daughter who's dying. And while he's going to heal, he accepts the invitation to go to Jerry's house, the hill dog. He, this woman who has an issue of blood, she's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. She's just, she knows she's unclean, by the way. So I want you to think about her. For 12 years, she had to tell people, stay away from me. So not only has this physical infirmity hurt her, scarred her physically and been painful, but emotionally, she's been disconnected from culture and society for 12 years. That's why she's desperate, just to touch the garment. But if she knows if she touches him, she makes him unclean. And he can't go heal the 12-year-old girl that's dying. She's had a chronic illness for 12 years. That is not going to cause death, just a lot of sorrow. But she's desperate for healing. Because she, she, wants, she wants relationships. She wants this disease over and she wants to be reconnected. And when she reaches out and touches him, boom, she's made well. We realize Jesus is Lord over sickness, disease, physically and emotionally. Then he goes to Jairus' house. The daughter is passed. Jesus raises her from the dead. And we realize that the king of the kingdom, for which we are a part, is not only Lord over nature, Lord over the demonic, Lord over disease, but he's also Lord over death. Our days are in his hands. That's the king that we serve, whose kingdom we're a part of. That's what the disciples are learning in this journey. And so in the midst of that, we hit th this point where he's done the second great feeding. Uh, first was with 5,000 men plus women and children. Saves 4,000 men with women and children. Both were with fish and bread. Uh, one they took up uh, 12 baskets, each one for, for the disciples. The last one they take up seven baskets, right? And then they make their way to the headwaters of the Jordan River, where Jesus, Caesarea Philippi, where that's when he asked that question. Why does he ask that question there? At Caesarea Philippi, the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy, was told from a mountain that would have been in the background. So you had the, the, the Hebrew nation, that what they put their trust in, the law, as background. 
you had there at Caesarea Philippi two main temples for pagan worship. In that context of the pluralistic worldviews of the gods that people served in that day, the Jewish people, the law for which they trusted in, Jesus says, who do you say I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. Right? You're the Deliverer. You're the Messiah. So now Jesus, on the way, he says to them, let me tell you something that's very important. The Son of Man must die. Whoa! That messes with you. I have joined this kingdom group who has a king. And now my king just told me he's going to die. This is when Peter says, pulls Jesus aside. He says, I don't know what just happened to you, but you have messed the plan. You cannot die. You can't. Now, they, I'm, look, we can be very critical of Peter, but you need to understand. Peter is thinking, our deliverer is going to kick Rome out. Because you have to remember, since the Solomon rule, basically, and, uh, they've not had peace. They had it, you know, in the southern kingdom for a long time. But the nation has been in captivity to, from one kingdom to the next. They have not been able to be completely free. They haven't known that for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they want Freedom, right? And so they see a deliverer. That's the Messiah. And this is what they've seen. Think about it. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. He, 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 he takes a little a bit of food and he multiplies it and we're satisfied and it's, there's leftover. Hey, I might be 12 of us and we might be fishermen, not trained professional army. And they might have 10,000. But if you can't kill me, if you can't hurt me, and my God can keep making food from little, I can't be beat. Right? Strike me down. He raises me up. It might take me a while, but if I'm the only one, Peter, when he draws out that sword, sure, go ahead, kill me. He's just going to raise me up. I will get to you. I will wear you down. You can't beat an army that can't be killed. That's what they're banking on. So when he says, I got to die, no, 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 because if you're gone, that doesn't happen anymore. That's problematic to our understanding the kingdom. So, first time, that rebuke, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Then they get to the Mount of Transfiguration. On the Mount, they get up there, right? Remember the story? They get up on the Mount, and all of a sudden, the peeling back, if you would, we're more... You know, all Jesus, all God, all man, right? And so, but but greater they're seeing God, and it blows them away. And God, the Father, sends Moses and Elijah to minister to the Lord Jesus. And in that ministering, Peter says, "Oh, for he says without question the dumbest thing that he ever said." Now, I'm not going to be too harsh with Peter, because if you ever want to do a contrast. See, let's just do it. If I, I say something, you give me the contrasting word. Dark, hot, happy, Jesus. Okay, silence should be our answer, right? Because there is no one like Jesus, right? So we think Satan, we should think Gabriel or Michael, one of the th other archangels, right? He has no equal. See, see, what happened to them is when they said, let us build a, a tabernacle, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses and Elijah, that's when the Father interrupted things. And he said, listen to my son. The Shekinah glory of God descended upon the mountain. He said, listen to my son. Right? 
because the, the point was, hey, he is not just mere man. He is not, he has no equal arrival, as the song says. So they come down, as they're coming down off the mountain, once again, he tells them the Son of Man must die. Now, I've got to go real quickly with just giving a few highlights so we get to what I want to read and then, and, and then just make a closing comment on. They, they get down to the bottom of the mountain, and uh, that's when the passage verses 14 through 29, we'll read in just a second. But after that, once again, verses 30 through 32 the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. This will be the third time he has said that to them. Then they're, they're, they leave, and they're going to another town. They, they go to Capernaum. And on the way, the disciples begin to argue about who's the greatest, right? And when they get to the town, Jesus takes a child after he asks them, what do you argue about? And they were embarrassed to say that. Uh, and he takes a child and says, if you want to be significant in my kingdom, become like one of these children. What, what does a child represent? A child is dependent. A child is weak. So what is he saying? If you, want to, if you want to lead in my kingdom, be dependent upon me. In your weakness, he shall be made strong. Then in verses 38 through 41, the disciples say, Hey, there's a group of people that are teaching and preaching in your name, and we tried to stop them. And Jesus said, Don't stop them. He says, Anyone that does a mighty work in my name will not speak against me. It's like the disciples just wanted to keep Jesus to themselves. We want all the power. We want to be able to cast out the demons and do these mighty works in your name, but it once needs to be us. And Jesus says, no, let it go. We should be praying for other evangelical works in our, in our community, in our neighborhood. Anyone that's making the gospel known, we want to be with them, right? We may have differences to some extent, but man, if they're making Jesus known, we want to be partnered and sharing together. And then in verse 42 through the end of the chapter, there's this, this need to eradicate sin. He says, look, if you, if you see yourself causing someone to stumble, it would be better to take a millstone tied around your neck. If your hand causes you to stumble, chop it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. I reverse the eye and the foot there. But you can read that passage. What Jesus is simply saying is this. We need to take sin very seriously and eradicate it from our lives. Don't play with it. Don't coddle it. Don't, don't, don't see how close you can get to it. Desire, eradication. And then he closes with, if salt, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how we make it salty again? Here's the thing, salt can never lose its saltiness. Salt is not salty, it was never salt to begin with. It cannot lose its salt. But what they would do in that time, because salt was a commodity they traded with, is that they would take stuff from the Dead Sea that looked like salt, and they would put it in with it, and they would sell it as a commodity as being the real thing. And what he's specifically dealing here with is hypocrisy, that which looks like the real thing that's not the real thing. And I think very specifically he was speaking to Judas Iscariot. Your hypocrisy. Guard, make sure you know the one who sets you free. Not just about the one who sets you free. Make sure you know me, that you're following me. Not just following me for what can come to you. I want your presence more than your promise. I trust you, Lord. And so there's the warning against hypocrisy. Now that takes us all the way back to, to where our primary focus is. And we've got five minutes to wrap it up. So sorry for the very long introduction. But look, look at this. Verse 14, when the disciples, they're coming down from the mountain, the disciples see a great crowd. This is from Transfiguration. The disciples come down, they see a great crowd around, and 
the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him and asked, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast him out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, so this boy has a, has a demon, has an unclean spirit in him. And immediately when the spirit saw him, it convulsed the boy and he fell to the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said to him, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? Now let me hold verse 29. See the story. Jesus has come down off the mountain. And, 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 and a crowd is gathered because this man has brought his boy, whom he loves, who's had this this wicked spirit, this demon in him, to have the disciples healed. Now, twice before, at least, the disciples have cast out demons. Yet they couldn't. So, there's this, so they're arguing. And Jesus walks into the midst of that. What's the commotion? What are you arguing? The father comes up, presents the case. He brings the boy to him. The boy falls down. Jesus says, basically, if you believe, I do believe, help my unbelief, and Jesus cast him out. Now, that's a powerful story. Now, listen, when I was assigned to do this, I started the seven-minute devotion. Sorry, it's been more than seven minutes here. But the devotion I was doing, I went and I found a sermon online by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a British preacher. He lived, uh, well, he died in the 1960s. But anyway, in the 19, in summer of 1959, he preached a message from this, this section of Scripture, wherein... It was on the 100-year anniversary of the Second Great Awakening. And what they were seeing in London at that time, as a pastor in London, England, um, he, what he was seeing was this inability to, in, to, to, to see gospel fruit like they had once seen before, especially in the Great Awakening. And so he was trying to unpack that. And so he came up with this allegory, which this is allegorical, but I think he's pretty spot on. He basically said, when you see the crowd... The unbelieving father, the, the, the demonized son, you see the unbelieving world. You see the lost world. So, you know, it's, it's, you have a father who cares. You have a son that's possessed. And they're, they're coming and they're wanting. They're looking for something more. And when you see the disciples, you see the church. Who are they coming to to heal, to help? They're coming to the church. And the church is not able to help. And what happens between the church and the unbelieving world? Then there's this, because, this arguing. 
And I thought, my gosh, if Lloyd-Jones lived in 2022, he could preach that same sermon and it'd be just as relevant. It seems that the world and the churches wants to argue and the power doesn't seem to be on display. That there's these hurting, lost people. And so Lloyd-Jones makes this comment and it just struck me. He said, sometimes the demons are in too deep. Sometimes the demons are just in too deep. And that's because they had been able to cast out demons before. <coughs> but in this moment, they couldn't. And I think we live in a culture where the spirit of this age has become so influenced by unrighteousness that the demon is much deeper than 60 years ago, 100 years ago. And there is, we have to recognize that things are more challenging when it comes to seeing people come to faith in Christ. So the answer to the, the question in Jesus' day, the answer that Lloyd-Jones presented in the summer of 59 is the same thing I would present to us. And this is, the, this is the, the only point in the close of the message. And it's this. Verse 29. The question, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And some of your versions will say in fasting. It's not in the original manuscripts, but it is fine to put it in there because I think at the very end, those, those, as, it, as it was being understood and translated over the, uh, those early centuries, they recognized that fasting was just the recognition that I'm willing to lay aside the necessary for something more necessary. I'm willing to lay aside the good for something better. I'm willing to lay aside what I enjoy for something more enjoyable. And this is, this is my point. For us to live out being kingdom people, light in the midst of darkness, to, in this kingdom for which we're a part of, that continues, and I, and I promise you, 15 years from now, the culture of the South will even look more reflective to that of the Northeast and out West when it comes to spirituality. As the demon gets deeper, the way to drive it back, the spiritual forces of the enemy, is through desperate, determined, dependent prayer. The kind of prayer that calls me to say, Oh God in heaven, we are trusting you. Our dependence, our determination will be found foremost on our faces before you asking for you to deliver and bring hope and life. And so the, 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 the point I would make to challenge us as we think about the beauty of what we share in is that we have this king who all authority has been given to him. We're in this kingdom and it is power over darkness. And the greatest opportunity we have is to humble ourselves and to seek the face of the one who can bring about life change. So let us pray like we believe. And when, even like that father, when our faith be little, pray, Lord, help my unbelief. I'm coming to you. To God, do what you can do, because I know I cannot. Let's pray together. Father, I, I am thankful.